0: Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 65 of the podcast, the topic is the urgency of a social-emotional learning fix. Our guest is Shai Fuchsman, project director at Education Development Center, EDC. In this conversation, we talk about what the big deal is with social and emotional learning. We cover the tremendous measurable benefits in terms of performance, attendance and college entry, or even societal savings and economic success. We discuss the trends in education and the pendulum swings between the STEM focus and educating the whole person. We discuss the criticism at times leveled against the SEL curriculum for being white-centric and what the educational community has done to address this, at times legitimate criticism. We also discuss EDC's new program for school districts to revamp their social and emotional learning approach. We briefly discuss education towards the next decade. Shai, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing great too actually it's uh it's a great uh it's a great morning I think uh, it's a perfect day to talk about youth education and the and the urgency around that but before that shy um I wanted to uh, to trace a little bit of some some stuff that you told me uh, in your background so you you know you grew up in in Israel right yeah. yes and um, uh, well, a lot of things happened, but you you know—you made your way to Harvard, you have a degree in uh, ed from, from, from Harvard, and you are now working at EDC. But uh, I wanted to stop at, uh, at an interesting point that you, you told me. You said you actually, for the first seven years of your life, you grew up in a, in a Jewish neighborhood surrounded by Palestinian, uh, I guess, settlements, And but you, you didn't know any Palestinians uh, at all until you came to the U.S.,
1: yeah, that's right. Uh, there were two uh, villages uh, right outside of our, my neighborhood. And in fact, we had to drive through those villages in order to go into the city or into the highway to get out of the city. Um, and we would just drive by. We never stopped. Um, we never um, had any relationships with any individuals living in that community uh, in either of those two neighborhoods. Um, that was just life uh, back then. Um, unfortunately, it's still like that for people living there now. Um, you know, this this complete um, separation
0: of between the two worlds. But then uh, w- w- what happened in the U.S. that made you, because you said this experience, reflecting on this experience, has been important to some of your educational choices.
1: Yeah, so when I came here to the U.S., I got to meet for the first time a Palestinian, even though I grew up next to them. Um, again, I didn't have any connections with them until I had I came all the way here f- for college. Um, and um, there was a fellow student who um, also um, was from Israel, Palestinian-Israeli, living in the northern part of Israel. And I was very curious to hear about his life. Um, First of all, I made all kinds of assumptions based on everything I knew or I thought I knew about Arabs um, and everything I knew about Israel. Um, For example, I I remember once talking with a group of international friends and people were talking about how in their third world countries – The water comes up very dirty, and I told my friend, "I I said, well, we're lucky. We're we live in Israel. Our water comes out clean." And he said to me, "Well, that's your neighborhood, your Jewish neighborhood. The water comes clean. Mine doesn't." Um, And so, and just in general, there was a lot that I learned about his perspective about the conflict. Um, I remember once asking him, out of true curiosity, I wasn't trying to uh, make him feel bad. I asked him, "How can he?" Praise Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO at the time when he is known to be a terrorist. And I really wanted to know his perspective. How can he praise this person? And he looked back to me and he said, well, don't you like Yitzhak Rabin, who at the time was the Israeli prime minister? And, you know, here's all the, the acts of terrorism that he committed. And, um, you know, we had this deep conversation and at the end of the day, I did not change my opinion about Arafat and he didn't change his opinion about Rabin, but I changed my opinion about him, about my friend. And, and we, at least I saw him as being a decent person who really wanted peace, but just had a very different perspective on the reality than, than I did. Um, and in terms of education, you know, one, one time in one of those deep conversations late at night, you know, in a college dorm, um. Maybe there was some coffee involved or alcohol. Um, we, uh, he made a comment about how he thinks that the key to peace is education. And the key to peace in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it is so important for us to really um, invest in children and youth to help them develop the, these skills to be creative and to think outside the box and, and to understand the conflict in this multi-perspective approach. And, you know, he just made a comment and, you know, he kind of, he kind of forgot about it, but it stayed with me for a long time. And when I decided I needed to pick a career, I, that, that just, that comment just came back to me and and I decided, this is it. I want to uh, go into the field of education. Um, I knew that I'm not a good teacher. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not very engaging, but I decided that research is what I can do well. And so I joined EDC and, and, um, You know, to figure out how I can contribute to creating research, to generating new knowledge that can help. you to help us use education for a, for a force for social change. I mean, that's really what I was passionate about. The idea that education can produce social change, whether it's a conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, whether it's uh, racism in the United States, whether it's uh, public health problems like substance misuse, that if we can just figure out what is the right educational approaches, we can actually change things while children are young and, and, and in general just produce a better... Um, a healthier and more peaceful society.
0: I wanted to take that personal uh, tone with you, Shai, because I think what we're going to talk about, so much of what you're advocating in your academic work also has to do with positioning education as a really life-changing uh, experience, isn't that right? Where we, you have to invest some part of yourself, uh, and obviously also in order to learn, you have to Work on yourself, and 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 if some people have additional work to do, then the the, the teachers in charge have to watch out and and, and really be aware of, of of some of these issues. Tell me a little bit about how you got to those perspectives, and then we'll 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 kind of roll it off into the more uh, sort of academic part. But. Um, is there sort of a thread? Was this something you immediately realized when you started studying education that you were going to kind of turn to these more social and emotional issues? Or, or had has that also evolved for you? Yeah, no, they definitely, it's all connected. Um, I mean, basically what I
1: realized and what I wanted to do in education is to say, you know, we tend to view education in such a narrow perspective that it's simply about teaching these very specific work-related skills. You know, how do we teach children to read and write and do mathematics and understand scientific concepts? Um, And I wanted to expand, and I still want to expand our understanding of education to this is the opportunity that we have to shape adults and to shape our society. Uh, Every aspect of the human experience, not only what they do at work, um, and even at work, it's not just about the very specific skills, but it's about how you relate to people. It's how you manage stress. It's how you manage emotions. It's how you set goals for yourself and, and believe in yourself and motivate yourself to achieve your goals. Um, we really need to make sure that when we're thinking about uh, education, that we're really thinking about educating the whole child, the whole individual, um, and really creating um, you know, positive uh, individuals. Um, hmm.
0: Beyond just the very specific academic skills. Um, so, I, yeah. uh, so I know there's an, there's a urgency to this in, in your mind and your program here with with EDC, you have developed this this sort of like uh, fairly urgent program that that we're going to talk about a little bit where you you really don't think that this is just a theoretical uh, uh, conversation at this point. There are some uh, some impetus out there to, to really get this in motion. but before we get to that, what is the whole big deal with, uh, and how did this social and emotional learning as a construct enter education? Is it is it a recent discovery or would you say, how long have you been thinking about these things as a com- educational community?
1: Well, it's definitely not new. It's been around, I would say, for at least a couple of decades. Um, the problem is that for a while, it was one of those conversations that were being had in very small corners of the field. Um You know, people realizing that, like I said, we have to figure out how to educate our children beyond just those academic skills. Um, And there's been researchers, you know, led by the uh, Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning, CASEL, um, out of Illinois, but researchers really across the country and across the world that began to actually put these hypotheses uh, into empirical studies uh, and to actually uh, research what is the actual impact of educating our students uh, using the social-emotional learning lens? Um, So there there was a time when conversations about SCL paled compared to academic skills. Uh, You know, I remember back in the 90s and in the the first decade of the 2000s when we talked so much about um, high-stake testing and STEM education, you know, that was the focus. Um, But now the field of SCL, we actually have research um, to... to, um, back all the arguments we've been making all along. We now know that when you implement uh, an evidence-based SCL program, your students will do better academically. Like their academic scores will actually go up. It actually makes that impact. We also know that when you teach SCL skills, problem behaviors like violence, um, substance misuse, uh, uh, suicidality, how, harm, um, you know, wanting to harm yourself, those behaviors go down. Um, and these are real problems that, you know, when children, when when youth, when families face these, these are real problems that we ha- now have research to show we can actually decrease these behaviors. Um, we can actually demonstrate now that when you teach SCL, children are better prepared for college once they get there and they're better prepared uh, in the workforce when they get there. Uh, they have more. Uh, they, they have healthier relationships in their families when they get there. So we actually have now these longitudinal studies that demonstrate that this talk about SCL wasn't just this fluffy concept that some of us wanted to push into education, but that there's actual evidence that it makes a difference, uh, and it makes a difference on so many
0: different levels. Um, my question at this point is: What exactly? is it that you are teaching in SEL and I'm sure there's different things but if you take like a broad church approach here what is it that you're teaching are you teaching character are you teaching sort of how to learn are you teaching are you teaching skills at all i mean is it a soft skill uh, curriculum or is it is it all sort of non cognitive parts of learning what what is what is SEL today and, and what are you teaching So I would say SEL is really an umbrella of uh,
1: some very discrete skills. Um, So for example, under SEL, you will find relationship building skills. How do you develop and maintain healthy relationships with individuals, including how do you work collaboratively, which is so important in in the workforce, as an example. That's one very kind of uh, category of skills under SEL. Um, Emotional management, how to manage stress. Um, how to identify and act on emotions in a healthy way—that's a very another category of very discrete um, skills. Goal setting: how to uh, set goals for yourself and be persistent um, and and de- and determine what it, how and what you want to accomplish. Those are very specific skills. Mm-hmm. Um, another discrete category of skills under this broad umbrella of SEL. Uh, I just want to give you an example uh, of my own child, my own son uh, in sixth grade, he was struggling with math. Um, he really had a hard time. And the part of the, of the math that he had problem with was that when he saw a math problem that he, that looked scary to him, he would give up, he would shut down. It's not that he didn't understand the mathematical concept is that his mind wouldn't allow him to sit and grapple and actually challenge himself to. Deal with the math problem is you know he just didn't want to do it. He was too scared, and we were able to get a teacher who actually understood SEL, a math teacher who understood SEL. And what I created the teacher of um, was with doing with, for my son wasn't to improve his mathematical sk- thinking because that was already there. It was to help them uh, develop those skills to, to believe in himself, uh, that growth mindset, the idea that if I try this problem a couple of times and I make a few mistakes, that's fine. I can. Go back, and I can keep working on it, and eventually I will figure it out. Um, it's that, that kind of skill that falls specifically under SCL that can make a big difference um, academically. So, the, these are just examples. Um, these are all examples, whether it's emotional management, relationship building, uh, growth mindset, these are all part of the broader umbrella that is SCL.
0: So, that would bring me to the question can this be taught? Uh, you know, at all? And 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 secondly, can it be taught in schools? Because let's just say that makes a lot of sense to me, but it would seem to me also very difficult to teach. So, you, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, you were lucky with your son. Uh, how could you methodically make sure that large cohorts of people actually get this message and take it in emotionally as as the truth? Because this is not just some Skill in a certain sense, right? It it is a deep seated truth that they kind of need to grapple with. How does that even happen in a learning context? So let me just scale. Yeah, let me just answer your first
1: question. Can it be taught? Absolutely, yes. Can it be taught in schools? Yes. Can it be taught at a large scale? Yes. Um, And how do I know that? Because we have research to show that. We have now evidence-based programs that have been developed and have been evaluated and have been tested that demonstrate that when students participate in these programs, they actually grow on these different SEL skills. And again, it's about taking the very specific discrete SEL skills and measuring pre and post a program and seeing there's definitely growth. Um, and if you get really into the research uh, weeds, you know, we're talking about randomized control trials where you actually demonstrate that students who participate in these programs build these skills at a much higher rate and, a, and more successfully than those who don't participate. So so that all is meant to answer your question, can it be taught? Yes, it can. Um, but how can it be taught is is an important question, Um so uh, like I said before there's evidence-based programs or curricula that uh, cl- that a teacher can open a notebook and actually uh, or a textbook and teach um, and that does uh, that helps to certain extent but uh, what one of the points you were making about SCL is that it's more than just a academic content or a kind of cognitive skill that you teach the best way to teach is, is really through practice um, So for, for example, collab- collaborative skills, the best way to teach it is by actually having students practice working collaboratively. So when you integrate collaboration into every academic subject, when you have students working together on a math problem or in a science problem together over time, they will develop those skills um, and they will build those relationships. When you talk to students about, um, you know, identifying their emotions, you know, are specific practices and skills that you can, uh, practice in, in in the classroom and talk to children about how are you feeling right now? You know, I'm feeling upset. Well, let's, let's, let's unpack that. What exactly are you feeling? What, what is, what is it that you're feeling upset about and, and how can, what can we do about it? And what are some specific things you can, uh, specific reactions you can have to these emotions that are productive rather than unproductive uh, reactions? Um, you know, having those conversations over time, you know, beginning as early as, uh, you know, preschool really, um, throughout, uh, you know, in an age-appropriate way, um, that will build those skills. You know, the students will, in fact, have stronger skills. And again, we have the evidence to show that that will make a difference. Hmm.
0: Tell me now a little bit about this EDC program that you have uh, been a big a vocal proponent of and put together. This sort of, I, I believe, it's like a two-month program. But it, but you're sort of saying we need to put this on the agenda now, uh, and there's a certain urgency about it. It's not just kind of this the you know these are concepts that we need to kind of understand you you really want to uh, take this moment in in history and and really train people on this perspective w- what is that training all about and how can a school get involved with that well first of all uh,
1: conceptually what we're, pro- what we're proposing is that schools can best support their students when they apply a continuum of services uh, when it comes to scl uh, and mental health so I mentioned before, there's classroom-based curriculum. That is one way, um, but also training teachers to um, pra- to have SEL practices, uh, you know, uh, that they practice in the classroom. Is another way school wide policies that promote SCL is another strategy, um, but in addition to that, we also know that some students uh, will be particularly vulnerable to uh, and/or weak in terms of social-emotional skills, either because they experience uh, very high levels of stress or chronic stress, for example, exposure to trauma at home or in the community, um, and that can lead to mental health um, disorders. Um, in fact, we know that one in five students in the United States will at at one point develop a mental health condition that requires mental health interventions. So what we're proposing is a whole continuum of services, um, in essence, a system of social-emotional supports for students um, that begins at the district level with policy um, and moves into professional development for teachers um, and uh, mental health counselors and coordinates those supports um, from from what happens in the classroom to what happens in a mental health uh, clinician's office um, to really provide a whole child perspective. So that's the concept that we're promoting. Um, and we're promoting, ag- again, because it's evidence-based, because it's research to show that when you have that uh, system of supports, students benefit from it. Uh, that leads to positive outcomes. Um, so so that's the concept. And in fact, that's a, a, we call it a multi-tier system of support. And that's a concept that is not uh, uh, exclusive to EDC. Um, In fact, many uh, people in the field of education are moving towards that direction. What we at EDC have is a set of tools and trainings that we call the rapid assessment and action planning that helps district build these systems of support. Um, The challenge is when we talk to school districts, they say, everything you just said sounds great, but where do I start? you know, this sounds too complex, too complicated. There's so many things to deal with. Where do I start? And that's exactly what the wrap does for you. Um, it helps you to, uh, we come in with our tools and with our trainings and we help you as a district build your capacity to assess um, three things. To assess student um, strengths and weaknesses in terms of SEL. So you know, you understand your student population and what they need. We assess current programs and practices because most schools are doing something around SEL or mental health, but they're not always coordinated. Uh, and the third, we assess the system. So are, are these different programs and practices that you have in place, are they well-coordinated? Are they supported by data? Do you have a data-driven system to identify students who need supports and to monitor progress? Uh, so we, we assess those three things. Um, and then we come back and we tell you, this, this is where you're strong, this is where you're weak, these are the, your gaps, these are your needs. And then the second part is the action planning, which is we help you develop a strategic plan that you can implement on day one um, to move you towards that MTSS framework. Um, So we give you a six-month plan, a year-long plan, a three-year plan. Um, Ultimately, what we provide you is a tool to build a system that is not only data-driven and evidence-based, but is sustainable
0: over time. So I know this is a fairly new approach, but you, know, you have been working on this for, for a long time. What is some of the evidence from school systems and districts that have implemented similar things? I don't know if you, your program has been fully implemented yet, but tell me a little bit about what happens when a school district starts to engage in this very systematic way. Well, for one, we, what we see is that students don't fall through the
1: cracks. When you have that system, students don't fall through the cracks. Right now, what happens is a student might come to school after experiencing uh, a traumatic event, or a student might come to school struggling to build social skills because they might have they might be on the autism spectrum, for example. Um, and sometimes the students uh, go under the radar. Uh, we don't see them, we don't identify them, we don't support them on, on time. Uh, what we know from research is that ma- many of the mental health conditions and many of the social emotional skills can really be built when you, they're identified and addressed when they're identified early. Um, so, what we see from the research is that schools that have these systems in place. Um, the number of students who end up needing these very intensive mental health supports goes down because we are able to identify their weaknesses. We're able to identify their challenges early on and support them so that they don't further develop into uh, very uh, acute uh, mental health conditions. So that that's one of the outcomes is we're reducing the need for acute mental health supports uh, because we're providing those skills early on and, and ad- identifying supporting students early on. Um, second, it allows for a uh, more uh, cohesive um, approach to SEL. Um, so, for example, you sa- you asked me before, can this be scaled up? Um, because you know s- sometimes these skills are taught by individuals who just have the natural talent. You know, you might have a teacher who's very good about connecting with their students. Right? They just greet them at the door, they they know they how to ask them about their issues, but that's just that one teacher because they happen to be really good at that. And so if your student happens to have that one teacher, great, they'll benefit from it, they'll develop that relationship, they'll have that healthy relationship um, and, and make progress. But what if your student is goes to the other classroom with the other teacher who doesn't have these skills? Um you know that that's that's when when schools struggle when when these kinds of practices are not um, implemented uh, across the board, um, and so that's the other thing that we we can see from having these kinds of assessments is where are your strengths, uh, you know who are the teachers who really get it, and how can we then use that to scale it up throughout the entire school? How can we make sure that those practices that work really well in one classroom are also replicated in every single classroom? Um, then the third thing I'll mention this, and I, I recently had a conversation with a superintendent and, and she really liked this, um, this analogy, it's this metaphor I used, uh, you know, we were talking about all the different, uh, SEL programs she has in the classroom and the counsel, the guidance counselors that she has. And, and she said, we have it all. And we have the assessments, you know, to assess SEL skills, but it's not connected. Each person is doing their own thing. They're not talking to each other. The assessments don't inform the practice. The practice doesn't help move the assessment. Um, and so I told her, it sounds like what you have—it's like it's almost like you went to IKEA to buy a piece of furniture, and what you got is all the pieces. You have all the pieces for the table that you bought, but you don't have a table. You just have the pieces. Um, and so what we do, we help you build a table. We help you to put together all the different pieces. What you do in the classroom, what you do in the data collection process, what counselors are doing in their offices. We, what are the districts? policies being implemented at the at the district level how does it all kind of align in a nice way that it creates one cohesive system
0: well i could just imagine you know being uh, a superintendent of schools and you know if they're approached by you or they even listen to this they're sort of thinking to themselves some version of of what uh, your uh, current client here was uh, was saying you know i have all this how what is the diagnostic criteria for knowing whether you have all this or you actually have the entire table. In other words, where you are in this IKEA process. How do you know whether you are actually doing this? Or I mean, can you actually also work with high performing school systems and and make them even better no matter what? I'm just trying to understand who your message is for here. Because, you know, let's just say I'm a superintendent and I think that my school system is uh, running really well. Do I need this? So I
1: would say yes. Um, you know, it's interesting that you asked me that because uh, just the other day I was speaking to one of the a district, I won't name the district, but they have a great model that all other districts look up to. Um, you mm-hmm. know, this, this per- they have it on the website, they've published on it. And I was having a conversation with the person in charge of the program. And I said, you know, you have your program being implemented, your your model being implemented in 70 schools in your, in your district. It's a, it's a large urban district. Um, it's, so you're all set. And she said, no, (laughs) you know, every district, every school does it differently. We have the right framework at the district level, but then when you take it to implement it at the school level, especially when you have 70 different schools that are working on it, it's very difficult. Uh, You know, you really have to work with every single school to make sure that they're implementing the model with fidelity. And that's been a challenge. Um, But... You can't address a challenge until you know exactly where are the problems, you know, until you kind of diagno- diagnostic the, the the challenges within the system. And so that's what the RAP does. That's what our system does. It allows you to diagnose what exactly are the, the holes within your system. So in this case, in this particular district, they had a system, just the district, the system had holes in it. So we just needed to help them figure out how to plug the, the the holes within the system. Um, in other districts, they don't have the system to begin with, so they really are trying to build it from scratch. Um, so they might have half the IKEA <laughs> the the pieces to the IKEA table, and they need to go back and and get additional pieces in order to build the system. Um, so again, our what we do is we come. We have um, a series of tools um, and trainings that we do virtually. Uh, now it's virtual, obviously because of COVID nineteen where we help you to identify as a district, you know, what are all the different interventions that you have in place? Um, Sorry, one second. We help you to identify what are all the different interventions you have in place across the different uh, tiers. And by tiers, I mean, what are you doing at the classroom level? What are you doing with small group supports? What are you doing in the, you know, using individual uh, interventions? Um, but also, we have rubrics that um, help you to identify what are the gaps in terms of connecting the whole system together into one cohesive system. Um, and and you know, we have, these, are, these are tools that we've used um, in districts across the country. Uh, we have work in Massachusetts, in Indiana, uh, in, in uh, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, where we've been using these tools to help districts identify um, what are the specific needs that
0: they need to address in order to build this cohesive system. I don't know if this exists, Shai, but um, is there any way of telling what's the return on investment on admittedly spending you know some considerable energy on this SEL stuff versus doing other things? In other words, I mean, one thing is to say, if you implement this program, we do see some results, but do you have any sort of uh, idea of what is the... Uh, sort of return on investment on investing in this program versus, you know, spending all the resources on, you know, on a STEM program or something of that sort. Do you have any comparative evidence that this actually improves certain types of uh I guess life outcomes or educational outcomes? Well, so there is one
1: seminal study actually uh, in SCL that was conducted that identified the very specific uh, return on investment being $11. Specifically, for every dollar invested in SCL, we save as a society $11 on expenses from uh, healthcare to criminal justice. Um, Again, you know, these are programs, these are studies. That have identified SCL as a strategy for actually reducing the, in the long term um, behavioral problems, uh, reducing crime, reducing um, unemployment. Um, so we actually, you know, economists have actually done this this analysis. I'm not an economist myself, but I've read their studies. Um, but that's that's kind of at the very big level, kind of macro level. At the school micro level, um, you know, we see students um, again uh, doing better academically. Um, you know, I saw studies showing from, you know, seven percent up to twenty-three uh, percent changes in academic uh, um, uh, performance um, on different kinds of standardized testing uh, when they have the SEL program, or com- when comparing, you know, the, the difference between uh, students who, who have an SEL program versus those who don't. Um, it also decreases absenteeism. It decreases um, or increases uh, graduation rates. You know, students who are able to manage the stress are more likely to stay engaged and to, and to stay in school, um, to show up to school every day. Um, disciplinary uh, numbers go down. You know, suspensions, uh, detentions. You know, those numbers all go down. Um, and again, this is all based on very specific studies. Um, so, so we definitely s- we have the data to demonstrate that SEL programs can, in fact, uh, produce positive outcomes in multiple different domains. Um, now you asked me about you know why invest in SEL for example as opposed to a good STEM program. It's really not one or the other. You need the good STEM program, but the STEM program needs to be um, taught with teachers who understand SEL, who can integrate social and emotional practices into their STEM program. So you can have a great science, you know, physics program. Um, and you can do that in a way that students are learning also how to build collaborative relationships and build and work together. And uh, that students are motivated to actually grapple with, phys- with the problems in physics uh, and not just give up as soon as they get scared by the numbers or the, the formulas. Um, so it's really both. It's about integrating SCL into everything that we do um, in the schools.
0: Shai, I wanted to lift the perspective a little bit from sort of like an urgent uh, problem that's kind of in the here and now towards more of the long term. If you look at the notion of adolescence and what's happening to young kids today, and I don't know, you seem to work, uh, I guess, uh, across the K through twelve space, right? Um, but as people become adolescents today, what what happens, you know, uh, to to our students, and to what extent? Uh, are schools actually able to capture the kinds of changes and, and adapt? Because, you know, uh, I have a teenager in the house and they're, ra- you know, and she's rapidly changing. How can teachers, with or without a system, uh, adapt to such changing realities where literally from one week to the next, uh, you know, at least that's what I've experienced, you know, what I need to... Say in order to be viewed as a competent person that has any, you know, expectation of 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 uh, being taken seriously, you know, the, the the way that I have to present that message has to change.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I have spent many years focusing specifically on adolescence. My dissertation was uh, focused on, on on that period. Such an interesting and yet complicated um, period uh, in in in, the, in development. Um, there's so many different changes happening biologically, psychologically, socially, um, and you know it's a struggle uh, for an adolescent to um, to understand the, the changes that they're have they're happening to them and they're happening around them. Um, and you know, on one hand, you know it all depends on, on your perspective. There are people who look at adolescence as a time of great trouble and great risk and great challenges. Uh, in a negative way, um, but at the same time, it's also a time when they're trying to to, uh, de- to develop their own identity and their own thinking. And uh, in fact, my dissertation actually focused on understanding how young people, uh, high school students, develop their political thinking. You know, during childhood. You, you know if, if you even care enough about politics you're probably just re- repeating what you' you're hearing from your parents right um but during adolescence you know you start to actually think for yourself and you try to understand the the social and political world around you and develop your own position and your own thinking um, sometimes that means rebelling against your parents because you, you want to dif- differentiate your own thinking from those of your parents that you've kind of adopted for so long. So sometimes that's where that tension comes with parents uh, is that students, uh, young people are trying to rebel uh, in order to, to uh, become more independent. Um, and yet at the same time, it's a period where um, the sense of belonging becomes so critical, although it shifts from this, the need to belong to your family as a family unit, which is so important to a child, to now needing to belong to a peer group. Um, you know, that becomes one of the most important priorities, you know, if you're an adolescent is how do you belong to the right peer group? Um, And and so that's another transition, another challenge. Um, So there's a lot of different challenges that a lot of different transitions that are taking place. The role of adults, uh, whether it's parents or educators, is to support that process in a safe environment. It's almost like a... um, You know, a planned explosion. You know, (laughs) you know it's going to happen. But if you do it in a safe environment, at least it will happen in a way that's productive. Um, You know, one of the things we know, for example, about adolescents is that they need to take risks. Uh, You know, they want to take risks. Um, So how do we help them take the right risks? You know, a risk could be to, uh, you know, drink alcohol or to get, you know, to drive a car very fast. Or a risk can be to try out for a, a, a theater play, you know, for the main main role of a, of a, of a play or to join a new club or to start a new, a new environmental movement in your community because that's what you care about. So I think it's about giving them the tools and giving them the space and giving them the, the, the forum to create... Um, their, their, uh, their paths, create their, their sense of purpose, um, create their own identity, their own opinions, their own ideology, uh, in a way that will lead to positive, um, outcomes.
0: Shai, I wanted to handle one of the criticisms leveled against SEL, which is, it's all nice what you're talking about, but it's peace speak. In other words, you know, all of this is about appeasement. It's about, uh, kind of hiding real conflicts. It's about appeasing, making people malleable, even under communicating conflict and, uh, you know, oppression doesn't exist. We are all in this family together. And, and, you know, if you think about the racial uh, component of it, uh, I I guess this could become a problem for uh, young people and for parents who feel, you know, we live in a very different society than what our teacher perhaps is talking about with all of this uh, love and an emotion and, and and my my reality just is different. What is what do you say to that? And how can an SEL program counter that kind of criticism, or or is it just completely uh, irrelevant to the process?
1: No, I think that criticism is very legitimate, uh, and I agree with it. I agree with the, with the criticism, um, and I think that a lot of people in the field of SEL are acknowledging that what we've been doing for many years is teaching uh, young people how to navigate not their lives, but our own lives, Uh, you know, especially, you know, white teachers teaching black and Latino students, Latinx students how to navigate a white world rather than their own world, um, which I think has been, which in fact is very problematic. Um, And and the data, by the way, shows it, you know, that there's more disengagement in SEL programs by students uh, whose worlds are very different from the ones being taught by an SEL teacher uh, or uh, how the way SEL is taught to them. Um, and so there is now a movement to change that, to rethink SEL in a much more cultural responsive way um, that begins with the educators acknowledging the realities of the students. Uh, so if you're a white educator educating a black adolescent, you have to talk to them about their reality. You have to talk to them about what is it like to walk around in their neighborhood as a black young man and be afraid of, for your life, be afraid of be, getting shot by the police or getting hurt by the police. You have to have the, that conversation. And then you have to help them understand what they can do, how to empower them to, uh, to change that reality, um, you know, including how do you actually create a movement and how do you join a movement and how do you truly change a, a community? That really is SCL, and that is where SCL should be heading towards, um, rather than simply saying, you know, don't worry about it. As long as you're motivated, as long as you work hard, you'll you'll succeed. Uh, it is to acknowledge, you know, we understand that this is, you know, we want to understand what is your complex world. And if I can't understand it, I'm going to talk to you and help and have you help me understand your reality so that I can help you navigate it.
0: So SEL isn't at the end of the day, or it doesn't have to be all about white values. It's not just about imposing some version of, you know, sanitized society on on people whose realities feel very different.
1: Well, it has been. Unfortunately, it has been, uh, but it shouldn't be. Uh, And and I think that's where we're moving towards. And I think that there's a lot of conversations in the field about, uh, and and a lot of different voices coming into the field to tell us, you know, we really, you really need to think about this differently because it really shouldn't be what it has been, which is the promotion of these white normative values um, that ignore the oppressive forces that impact our students of color.
0: Talk to me about another part of uh, of this current historical moment, uh, which re- relates to to remote learning, because COVID has obviously introduced remote learning with a bang in many, many school systems. And now uh, many many of them who didn't want to close down are closing down for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, how can you conduct any kind of SEL remotely? And has this just been a complete implosion of thinking about the whole person? Or or is there any sort of silver lining to, to COVID in terms of actually focusing uh, in on the technology and, and solving some problems that weren't solved before?
1: So the COVID uh, pandemic has definitely made things harder for SEL, especially uh, because, as you point out, uh, so much of what we are doing now, education-wise, is remote. Um, so it's harder, but not, but it hasn't made it impossible. It just means we have to be even more intentional and more focused on thinking about how do we promote these SEL skills um, through through remote learning. Um, I again, I look at my own children. They go, uh, they spend most of their time in, in "quote unquote" school in front of a laptop. Uh, without socializing with other kids, without the time in recess that is so important, without the time in the hallway, just having conversations. Um, so those organic, natural uh, situations that a f- an in-person school creates to have children develop relationships no longer exist in a remote learning context, which means that educators need to make it more intentional and create more, you know, in, in a way artificial uh, or not artificial, but uh, more structured social time. You know, for example, you know, if you have remote learning, you can have students work on assignments together. uh, You know, and and help them figure out how to use technology to connect, whether it's a Zoom call or you know, there's now so many different apps and platforms. Our young people, our our youth, can tell us more than we know um, that where they can find them each other and and work collaboratively. Uh, But we have to set that as an intentional goal of education uh, in a way that. we didn't have to as much when kids were in person and were kind of naturally
0: working together. So you know, the environment in in this case, you know, the uh, the pandemic environment, it definitely is a disruptive force in education. And uh, we have talked a little bit about social dynamics and 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 you know, youth uh, as a, as a time in, in in a person's life. What are some of the other disruptive forces that really shape whether? Uh, SEL uh, can achieve its uh, ideals? Are there ways that political, you, you talked about how the system has to start with policy An EDC's system starts with policy. To what extent is this also a policy decision to say, thou shalt have uh, you know SEL in, in every system and then uh, a lot of problems kind of get sorted out because there's high level buy-in?
1: Yeah. So in when we talk about having an effective system of SEL mental health supports, we actually identify some elements of effectiveness. Uh, you know, they include things like uh, focusing on uh, using data to drive decisions and communication coordination. One of those key elements is commitment from leadership. It really does have to begin at a district level um, and all the way up at the superintendent level uh, to make a decision that this is something that we care about. Um, and it's not something we care about just because um, it feels good. But this is something that actually is going to lead to the to the the goals that we have for education. This will actually help our students graduate um, with higher academic scores, uh, with with healthier um, mindsets and habits and behaviors. Uh, this is actually going to help us achieve our outcomes when the leadership understands that and articulates it in a in a in a very clear vision. For the entire uh, system to follow, uh, that's when you have uh, success in, in, in creating that system. So it definitely has to start there. Um, and and you know and then also there's some investments that go into creating this system. You know how do you make sure that all your teachers are uh, trained on SEL um, skills and practices? How do you make sure that you create the time and structure to put in place some of these social emotional uh, supports? Um, how do you make sure that you develop partnerships with community-based organizations that can help you um, address mental health needs? Um, you know, these are all part of this of this of what makes a system strong, um, and 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 it begins with um, the commitment with from leadership.
0: Hmm. Shaw, you have worked in this field for a while now. What is your best uh, prediction in terms of the the next decade, the future of SEL? What, what what's going to happen? I mean, we have now, we've got COVID. Uh, we have had this discussion, I'm, or you're telling me there has been this discussion taking in the criticisms of SEL, and then you have these uh, new approaches from EDC, which structures it and kind of puts it into a system. Looking at the next decade, what is your best prediction? I mean, what percentage of schools in the US or, or internationally will truly adopt what you would consider kind of healthy and productive SEL tactics and, and, and plans and, and how many will just continue to sort of ignore it and at, with what results?
1: Well, looking at the past couple of years, give us a good um, understanding of the future uh, because there's definitely is a movement um, to move towards SCL. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, sometimes our education system works as a, as a pendulum, you know, so for a while we talk all about academics and high uh High st- uh, stake standard testing, um, and then we move back to well, maybe it's not just about academics. Maybe we also have to worry about the the whole child. Um, my hope is that the pendulum doesn't go back from where we are now, and um, my hope is that the pendulum keeps swinging in towards SCL um, the way to do that is, is, you know, in order to keep the pendulum there, we have to do a couple of things. First of all, we have to talk about SCL as uh, in parallel with academic achievement, not instead. It's not one or the other. It's not the really good STEM program or the good SCL program. It's about combining the two. It's about teaching STEM in a very scl oriented way. Um, the other thing is we also need to, you know, the way educa- education gets impacted by so many external forces, um, by colleges that, you know, make decisions about who to admit by our workforce, by our, our uh, policy makers. Um, so I believe that one of the things we need to be doing, and I'm hoping that we're moving in that direction, is to help the private sector understand why, w- when, when schools educate on SCL, why they benefit from that. Because if the work, if the private sector begins to demand SCL be part of schools, schools will definitely do it. And I think that there's some, um, you know, you, you're starting to see some corporations moving towards um, understanding and promoting SCL as an important uh, factor in their hiring practices. So as we move, you know, as the private sector becomes more aware of the evidence for how SCL can make their employees stronger and, and therefore their bottom line better. Um, we will we will be able to better sustain SCL. Um, same thing with policymakers. You know, I look at you know the reality in this country right now, where the country is so polarized, uh, where people are just forgot to, uh, just no longer are able to th- to take multiple perspectives. We're thinking is such a a biased in such a la- uh, unilateral way. Um, That is creating these political rifts. If we begin to understand that as a country we will be stronger, that our democracy will be more robust, if we teach young people these skills that will enable them to have conversations across uh, political divides. Um, you know, if we can uh, convince our policymakers that this is important for our democracy, they will make sure that they're investing, you know, tax dollars and that they're investing policy decisions in SEL. So my hope for the future, I'm, I'm not as good as predicting as I am for hoping for the future is that we can get the private sector on board, that we can get policymakers on board. Um, and if, and when we do that, I believe that SEL will be here, uh, to stay, uh, in the field of education.
0: So Shai, uh, my last question is this, and you know, many of my listeners are policymakers, they are in private sector uh, or they're thought leaders in some field. And let's say that some of them believe what you're saying, uh, but they they are not in that field. They want to track the field, they want to understand the field, and they want to potentially implement some of the things you're talking about. I'll obviously link up everything from your background and that the EDC is doing. But b- beyond that, what what is the best way to get engaged with the field of SEL, uh, as a policymaker, as a parent, as a teacher, you know, or, or, or a superintendent. Regardless where you come from, what are the sources of information that you trust that they can go to?
1: Well, there's multiple organizations uh, focusing on this topic. So EDC is definitely one of them. And I definitely invite people to come to our website, edc.org, and take a look at the work that we're doing in SCL. Um, I mentioned CASEL before, the Collaborative for um, Academic and Social and Emotional Learning. Um, they are another great um, organization that does a lot of work in um, in SCL. Um, there's the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, again, another one of the leaders in the field um, so, you know, there's definitely organizations out there, um, including EDC that do this work. What I will also say is if you are a member of the private sector, or if you're a policymaker, if you're a parent, ask your school, you know, ask a school in your community, what, what are you doing about SCL? Um, and either what you'll hear is here's exactly what we're doing and that'll be your opportunity to learn about it. Or you'll, you're here. I'm not. We're not doing enough, and that will put some pressure. Um, but but definitely, you know, I think it is an important conversation to to be had between, you know, pri- the private sector policymakers, parents, community members, and schools, um, because ultimately, I think this is a value. Uh, uh, you know, a, a value that we need to to put out there. We, we need to say this is something that, is, that matters to us. Um, I, in my personal life, I'm also on the school committee of my town. Uh, so uh, in, in a sense, I am a, a, a policymaker, an elected official. Um, and this is something that a school committee, we have made the decision in our community that we want, as representatives of our community, that this is something that we care about because we want our school system, our biggest investment in terms of, of dollars, but also in terms of emotional investment, to produce young people who have these skills. We want them to know more than just how to read and how to write and how to do math. We want them to know how to relate to each other. We want them to know how to take perspective, different perspectives. We want them to know how to manage emotions. Um, so there's a value that you have to take as a community. Um, and so, so again, I, I would just encourage anyone out there to, to have that conversation with your school system.
0: That's a great suggestion. Uh Shaya, thank you so much for your time today. This was uh, enthralling and important. And I, I wish you best of luck. And I guess I wish myself best of luck, right? Because <laughs> this is not an external conversation as a parent. Uh, you know I am in this conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You had just listened to episode 65 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the urgency of a social-emotional learning fix. Our guest was Shai Fuchsman, project director at Educational Development Center, EDC. In this conversation, we talk about what the big deal is with social and emotional learning. We cover the tremendous measurable benefits in terms of performance, attendance and college entry, or even societal savings and economic success. We discuss the trends in education and the pendulum swings between the STEM focus and educating the whole person. We discuss the criticism, at times leveled against the SEL curriculum for being white-centric and what the educational community has done to address this, at times legitimate criticism. We also discuss EDC's new program for school districts to revamp their social and emotional learning approach. We briefly discuss education towards the next decade. My takeaway is that social and emotional learning is fundamental to academic success and to success in life. Every student deserves to reap its benefits, not in 10 years, but now. With COVID-19, shaping the educational experience is both more important and more difficult to execute well. We all have a role to play. Private sector, superintendents, local policymakers on the school committee, parents, teachers, and students. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized. Prepare you to deal with disruption.